I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zivyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Today's episode has been sponsored by Good Pods. It's a really amazing app where you can follow your smartest, funniest, most curious podcast junkie friends and other people you admire to see what podcasts they're listening to, and it's all by episode. So I know I have my own podcast, but even I find myself overwhelmed by how many episodes there are of other podcasts and what I should listen to next. So Good Pods is still in beta, and they're looking for testers who will give them honest feedback. So you can go to Good Pods on the App Store or Google Play and check out which podcast your friends are listening to. And by the way, go on there and show them that you're listening to my podcast. That would really be awesome. So anyway, Good Pods was founded by a friend I used to work with many moons ago in, I guess, 1999, which really ages me here. But anyway, JJ Ramberg and I used to work together at a big company called Idealab. If anybody heard of that, she was with the site called cooking.com and I was with Idealab. And now she started Good Pods, among many other endeavors that she's done. Um, and this she's done with her brother, Brad Ramberg, who was also at Idealab with me. So all comes full circle. So anyway, thank you to JJ and Brad and everybody uh, at Good Pods for sponsoring this episode and for making a new searchable listening tracking thing for podcasts, which is going to be super helpful in helping people find great podcasts, hopefully like mine. (laughs) Thank you. Hi, just a little disclaimer here. I'm so sorry, but for some reason, my microphone did not work that well during the recording of this episode with the amazing Madeline Levine, PhD. You should totally listen to every word she has to say, and you can still kind of hear my questions, but really the best part is Madeline herself, So, or Dr. Levine, I should say. So you can still hear me, but I apologize for the mix-up. I'm really, really sorry. I don't know what I did wrong that day, but don't punish Dr. Levine for my mistake. And please listen, because she has... uh, such good advice for all of us, especially right now. So thank you. I'm here today with Madeline Levine, PhD, who is a psychologist and the author of the New York Times bestselling books, The Price of Privilege, Teach Your Children Well, and most recently, Ready or Not, Preparing Our Kids to Thrive in an Uncertain and Rapidly Changing World. She has close to 40 years of experience as a clinician, consultant, educator, and author. Dr. Levine is a co-founder of Challenge Success, a project at Stanford's Graduate School of Education. A graduate of SUNY Buffalo with a BA in English and an MA in education, Dr. Levine earned her MA and PhD in psychology in California. She currently lives with her husband in San Francisco and is the proud mother of three adult sons and a new grandchild. Welcome, Dr. Levine. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. My pleasure. So can you please tell listeners what Ready or Not, Preparing Our Kids to Thrive in an Uncertain and Rapidly Changing World is about? Although that really did kind of give it away. (laughs) That's like whenever anybody asks me that, I say read the title because, because it's really about that. I'm interested in children and parenting, and I think that times have changed so radically. Not that the uncertainty is so great, because times are always uncertain. But the velocity of change is incredibly fast. And so if you have a child like you do of those kinds of ages, nobody really knows what the world will look like and certainly what their jobs will be like. So I wanted to take a look at how people behave in situations of uncertainty. It's so funny. When you were introducing all of the things 
that we could be uncertain about. I started getting like so stressed out reading the book. <laughs> like, oh gosh, I haven't been worrying enough about these things. These things are also uncertain. Anyway, right. but thank you for giving concrete <laughs> solutions and coping mechanisms. So this is your third book. Right. Why this book next? Why did you want to write this book? So the reason's really important. So thanks for asking that question. My interest is in kids' mental health and teenagers' mental health. And so I had written two really popular books Price of Privilege sort of spawned a movement. So there's a whole bunch of us running around the country talking about kids need more sleep and less pressure and less homework and more downtime. And the reality is, while it helped individual families and kids, it wasn't a tidal wave of change. And if anything, rates of impairment have gone up. So rates of anxiety have gone up. Rates of self-mutilation have gone up. Rates of depression have gone up. So that would be pretty depressing to think that you spent 12 years trying to fix something and it's only gotten worse. But instead of getting depressed, I actually got really curious, like there are really smart people researching this and the needle doesn't move. Why not? So I decided to not look at my usual suspects, which are psychologists and educators, and see if I could find people who had been in situations of great change and what they had to say, and whether or not there was something about the environment that made us not think well. Because parents are always saying to me, you're right, I should do it, but I just can't, or I can't swim upstream, or they can sleep when they graduate, or these kinds of things. So it's when I first started 13 years ago, there was pushback against this, like you're trying to lower the bar, which I wasn't. I'm Jewish and my husband's a surgeon, you know, it's sort of like we're not known for lowering the bar. But it was really to get kids to, to work at their best. And I really wanted to know why the needle wasn't moving at all. And what about the way our brain processes uncertainty makes it harder to make good decisions? So what did you find? Why is the needle not moving? <laughs> I found a few things. One is under uncertain conditions, we have very conservative brains. And so we tend to look for past to the past for solutions when we should be looking to the future. So I'll often hear something like, well, Brown worked for me, so my kid has to get straight A's and I don't care if they sleep that much and they have to take APs to get into Brown because that's your ticket. Maybe, and just, just as likely, maybe not. We just don't know. So there's tremendous consensus about the kinds of skills kids will need going forward, but no consensus about what they'll be doing. None. So... In talking to AI people or futurists or things like that, it goes from, well, you'll probably have a self-driving car in 20 years and maybe your refrigerator will tell you if you're short on milk, to your brain will be fused with your computer and you will be a cyborg. So there's like zero consensus on that. And if you really don't know what your kids are going to do, I think that's really tough for parents. And I think there are three reasons why, well, there are many reasons why the needle didn't move, but the three that I see is there's tremendous uncertainty and anxiety, right? Anxiety is the number one diagnosis for kids and their parents, one in three. There is social media, which I think leads to a kind of compulsive 
comparison, mm-hmm. comparing. Mm-hmm. I cracked up in the Times. They had that article about, I wish I could remember the title exactly, but it's like, I feel bad about my body after watching J-Lo. Yes. And, and that was written by, you know, a grown woman. Yes. And, and she's like complaining about what if you're a 13 year old kid with pimples and I thought, wasn't it Jennifer Weiner who wrote it? Yes, right. it was mm-hmm. right. So she was also on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. So Let's plug. Okay. Keep going. <laughs> so pressure, uncertainty, social media, which I think has really raised anxiety because of constant comparison, and the 24 hour news cycle, which is just becoming bigger and bigger, and so the constant exposure to school massacre, mm-hmm. to the horrible things that are going on. And, and, I, and I tell people to get on YouTube and take a look at a preschool drill, active shooter drill, and you see these little kids with people in the hallway, and it's horrifying. So there's some research that says if you're exposed to negative imagery, that you will perceive the world as more dangerous than it actually is. So parents who worry about sending their kids out on a bike, Mm -hmm. they really shouldn't be worried because violent crime is actually down. But the constant exposure to these horrendous massacres in this country, I think, makes people very fearful. Yeah, sure. Today I was reading the paper, dropping off my kids like in the car on the way there. I was like, you know what? I just don't think I can read about this coronavirus anymore. I think I'm just going to not worry about it and wait until, like, it's too much. It's it's like too much to keep all that worry inside and then, like, go out and wish your kid a good day at school, right? It's a right. lot. I mean, Right, and I, and I think the other thing about it that's worrisome about it is that when we're that overwhelmed, I think we get, we throw our hands up exactly what you said and say, hey, I'm just going back to my house mm-hmm. and my kids and leave me alone. And, you know, we're at a political moment in this country where we can't afford passivity. And and I think that that constant exposure does, we end up being like trauma victims, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's like, did you hear about the massacre? I don't want to hear about it. Did you hear about the, I don't want to hear about it. And I think that leads to a kind of passivity. When my kids were young and they sprayed chemicals on the apples in mm-hmm. the local supermarket, yeah. we all went and picketed. We didn't feel helpless. We felt like we could affect some change. And we did. They stopped spraying alar on the apples. But I think now people are starting to feel like it's out of control and there's nothing they can do. And that's a bad feeling because helplessness leads to depression and anxiety. You had that whole section on learned helplessness. Learned helplessness, right? Yeah. Throw back to my psychology. (laughs) So you cited research that confirmed that people prefer to make choices based on known variables, even though making a slightly less certain choice could potentially lead to greater reward, which is what you were basically just talking about. So... I wondered if this is like why I book vacations to the same places over and over, even though there's so many parts of the world to see and yeah. things to do. And yeah. yet this is like a safe choice. Is that, are these, is this one of the hacks that parents tend to use? That- I th- Look, you know, you, you were talking about having what it's like to have four kids. I had three kids. I think we overestimate our bandwidth. Mm-hmm. And so if you're handling four kids and a career 
and friendships and being a wife and being all these kinds of things, if you can simplify Mm -hmm. parts of your life. I mean, it was always a discussion. My husband always wanted to go someplace else, and I always wanted to go to the same place because it was easier for me. And, you know, you have to remember that the brain sees unpredictability as a threat. So it because it has to expend more energy figuring out what to do. And so I think we reserve bandwidth by doing what we know will be successful. This actually just resolved a long-running conflict with my husband. Okay, well, you can, <laughs> tell, you. You can tell him I said so. Because <laughs> another thing I tend to do, at least I don't know if anybody else does this, at the last minute I, I realize, wait, I don't want to go to the same uh, place. Right, right. It's like it's imminent, and now I like have the bandwidth, I guess, to focus that, on that's it. That's right. And, so, anyway. and it doesn't feel as threatening to you anymore, right? If, yep. if, if you have to plan for six months, yes. it is threatening because it's going to take a lot of time. If yes. you're walking out the door and you say, hey, I'd rather go there, no time for it Thank to be you. a threat. Thank you so much. <laughs> What's your husband's name? His name is Kyle. Sorry, Kyle. Yeah. <laughs> so you have a quote from sports that you talked about a bunch in the book called, the most important play is always the next one. Right. How does this relate to parenting? To parenting. You know, I think I think we get stuck in what's happening in the moment being incredibly important. So I can remember when my kids were young, every every decision seemed like a big decision. You know, select soccer or traveling soccer or local soccer or right. whatever. And and we get stuck in that and go in a way that our kids don't necessarily. So we'd go to a soccer game and there'd be a bad call and the kids would lose and everybody'd be really mad, but then we'd go out for pizza and the kids were fine and the parents were still sitting at a table, you know, kind of bitching about the bad call. So I think to the extent to which we can let go of things and stay ahead, it's helpful. Once you've learned what you needed to learn from something that didn't work, it's time just to move on. And my favorite line actually is from Carol Dweck, who is at Stanford, who's known for, you know, mindset. But she uses the word yet. Mm -hmm. And so she'll say, a kid will say, I'll never be good at that. And she says, not yet, you know, or a kid will say, I just can't get calculus or whatever it is. Well, not yet. And I I think that's a good tonic for this idea that you get things quickly because you don't, Mm -hmm. just like as an aside, and don't like the word passion. Like everybody's talking about what's your kid's passion, and the kid is like six. Like they're not supposed to have a passion yet. Passions take a lot of work, and I don't think we acknowledge that. A lot of work, a lot of failure, a lot of falling down and getting up again. And so I think you keep your eye forward. I think when I was your age... (laughs) I tended to see mothering as a snapshot, like, oh, this kid's doing really well, but this kid's not doing as well. Now it's a movie. I mean, all those things that seemed so important at the time really pale next to the fact that you want to turn out kids that are good people who have some sense of purpose and who have good relationships. And whether or not they got a B or a C in their fifth grade social studies becomes really irrelevant. So you, your father sadly passed away when you were younger. Yeah. And your mother had a very old-fashioned mm-hmm. parenting style telling you things like you should know your place, 
don't have such big eyes, telling you even don't be so smart around the boys. <laughs> Things are like completely different. And yet you give your parents all this credit for your ability to synthesize information and all these other interpersonal skills, which you end up using as a psychologist. What do you think the effect of, of your parents has really been on you? Yeah, that was a really interesting question. Um, Losing my father was a terrible thing to have happened. I was very close with him. And How old were you? I was 17 when he died. So I was just going to college and sort of launching. It's an important time for a girl to have a father mm-hmm. around. And I ended up actually with a pretty severe anxiety disorder after that. I had panic attacks for many years, mm-hmm. which makes me a expert on anxiety, both by training and experience, and how debilitating it can be. My mother, it's interesting, you said old-fashioned. At that time. Well, at that time, it was <laughs> Right, at that time. And I think the impact it had on me, and they were incredible, they had incredible integrity. And so it's not that they helped me to learn to synthesize, they listened to me. And I think, you know, life is about chance as much as anything else. Chance favors the prepared mind, you know. And my parents were smart. My mom went to college. My father never did. But they were really curious. And I was really curious. So I'd come to the table with whatever it was, marijuana laws or gay marriage, even back then, or political stuff. My very first conversation that I remember was, I must have been really young, but Adlai Stevenson was running Mm -hmm. for president. And nobody liked him because he was an egghead. That was the word they used for him. And that was weeks of conversation about what was wrong with being smart. Mm-hmm. And so in the process of their receptivity to the outside world, I think I learned to translate things, especially as I got a little older, into the language of just every day sitting around the table. And... I think that's carried through in my writing. You know, I'm not like an academic writer. I kind of write the way I talked around the table. So that was helpful. The biggest thing was their sense of tikkun olam, or healing the world. I saw you, Mrs. That whenever there was an accident, my dad was a cop. He'd be outside in a flash helping people. That was a real, we used to have a box in the kitchen. And at the end of the day, you'd put whatever pennies and nickels and dimes you had, and that went, and then you decided on a project together for helping other people. So that was incredibly important. My mother's stuff, what my mother actually used to say to me is, don't beat the boys, because I was a very good ping pong player, and I could (laughs) beat any of the boys. And she'd come down to the basement, and Madeline, you're beating the boys again. I think she thought that would lessen my chances of getting married. And that was like the deal back then. Did it have a lasting impact? Yes, because two of my best friends now are the next generation after me, both physicians. And they won't even go to like a woman entrepreneur or a woman doctor thing because they consider they don't they don't think that way anymore. So they'll go to an entrepreneurial thing or a physician thing but not specific to being a woman. So in some ways it, it encouraged adaptability because what did I do when that was the way people thought? I worked at the Naval Hospital and they were getting a new head of psychiatry. It was a woman mm-hmm. and all the secretaries hid her mail because they didn't want to work under, I mean, it was such a different time. 
And, you know, my solution back then was to go under the wing of somebody. I always found somebody who was willing to take me under their wing. I just had a funny experience, may or may not relate. I went to a reading at Book Passage, my local independent bookstore, and it was Robert Haas, who has been the Poet Laureate of the United States twice. And he was my teacher at Buffalo. And so I'm speaking there 10 days after he's speaking there, and I'm like, Bob, you remember me? Oh, yeah, I do, you know. And he was like, aren't you speaking here? And I said, yes. And he said, Madeline, what took you so long? (laughs) Which was sweet because that college was the beginning of understanding that there were people who didn't feel you had to hide your light or be subservient. But it was so, I'm just you're giving me memories. When I did my PhD, you have a PhD meeting at the end with your committee. And these four men walked into my house. And the first thing they said is, could we have coffee? And I was not a coffee drinker then. I didn't know how to make a cup of coffee. And they were appalled. <laughs> so things change. Things you change. Know, you just have a curate like me. And <laughs> have to know the difference. All right. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs> right. And now we have Starbucks. So, yeah, right. You don't have to make. But but you have to understand in a way that back then it wasn't like, oh, my God, I'm being screwed by this. Or at Buffalo, I, you know, I was a very good student. I graduated Phi Beta Kappa, blah, blah, blah. I went to my counselor and said, I'm interested in medicine. They sent me to the school of nursing. Mm-hmm. Didn't want to be a nurse, but didn't have any thoughts of why did they do that? I mean, that came later in the women's movement and all the things that have changed opportunity and were nowhere near done, of course, by the way. (laughs) And the one thing from your life also that I found so interesting and something that as parents, probably we would all like to replicate with our own children is your, you touched on this adaptability, but to follow the squiggly path, right? That right. not every job opportunity is the right one. And right. you say in the book, like, you didn't beat yourself up about it. It's just mm-hmm. you realize, okay, that's not the thing for me, moving on. Right. And I don't think that's the way a lot of people respond to things like that. It seems it can seem like the end of the world, right? right. Like, oh, no, I tried this and didn't work. And how do you build up that resilience? Like, good, what, what yeah. do you think they did to you? And, like, did you do that to your kids? And what should parents everywhere do? And how does that make us ready to adapt in this rapidly changing world. Right. You know, I think people have misplaced ideas about how kids become confident. I mean, to be able to say this job is not for me and I'm going to do something else is really about confidence that you'll be able to do something else and you'll get another job. And so, you know, there was this long period of time about how do you build Mm self-esteem, which was nuts. And it was like every kid gets a trophy. And I was once, this is a visual, I I was once in a a classroom, a preschool classroom, and this little kid, mom comes in with this little kid and he's walking to hang up his coat. And mom is right behind him clapping, good job, good job, honey. And it's like, guess what? He's four. He's supposed to know how to walk across and hang up his coat, right? That is not how you build confidence in a kid. And I think that that whole self-esteem movement did a lot of damage. And, you know, the research is that it did a lot of damage and it did not build self-esteem. I think the way you build self-esteem is to let kids learn how to master things without breathing down their neck to see how they're doing. I'm back to Carol Dweck for some reason. She has this marvelous experiment where she gives four-year-olds puzzles. 
And the first set of puzzles are easy. They all do it. And the next set of puzzles, she tells half the group, oh, you're so smart. You know, you're like, you're going to get this. And the other group, she tells nothing to. And if you watch it, for the first couple minutes, the group she told is so smart looks like really good. But that fades very quickly. And, and the group that didn't have that extra burden of pleasing the adult and looking so smart, they way outstripped the kids who were told how smart they were. So I think to the extent a real positive in the way parents used to parent, they just weren't that involved. And you learned to pick yourself up. And you learn that it wasn't the end of the world. You know, I never hear parents say something like, oh, you can handle that. You know, I think that's the most important thing a parent can say as opposed to, even as opposed to how did that feel or how do you feel about that, which is, you know, another, tell me more. What, you know, what does the psychologist say? Tell me more. But just letting kids find their way. all day. To everybody, by the way. To everybody who comes in here. I'm like, tell me more. Yeah. Now I have to find a new one. No, but that, (laughs) I mean, you know, people are always like, can you read my mind? What does the psychologist do? And it's like, no, I'm just incredibly curious. Tell me more. Mm -hmm. And I think that opens up the conversation. And I think the fact that I knew my parents were proud of me, but they left me to my own devices. You know, I was fortunate. I was good at some things and not good at some things. And it was all the same. It didn't change. I didn't feel any of my value rested on the fact that I was an A student in English and probably a C student in math. I was a beloved kid, (laughs) uh, regardless of my grades. You have a section in your book called, For Moms, It's Harder to Find Fun. (laughs) Thank you for that section. What can moms do about that? So I'm aware that being a mother is a trajectory and that when you have young children, those, my son has a, a baby, and those first few months, I have nothing to say. It's exhausting. You do the best you can. You're sleep deprived, and you're not going to have a lot of fun other than the miracle of having a child. I think that intensive parenting, this kind of intensive parenting, like all your money and all your time and all your energy going into your kids is misplaced on a whole bunch of levels. It's misplaced for the kid. It's a burden for a child to feel that it, their performance is what dictates their mother's state of mind. And it shortchanges ourselves terribly. And so I think in Ready or Not, I talk about how in retrospect, Having three boys, it meant every weekend I was at some soccer game or lacrosse game or whatever. And it's not that I didn't think I shouldn't be at them because there was a sense of community when there's not a lot of community left. But for sure, if I had it to do over again, I'd go to one a month or two a month instead of every weekend and spend some of that time with a girlfriend or reading a book breakfast with my husband, laying in bed, doing something because we can't parent that intensely in four kids. I mean, that's that's huge number of children to keep track of. So I think, I think it would help for mothers to start thinking about looking at what their day is like. Like I do this, we do this challenge success all the time. We make 24 hours, right? And you put in, you know, your sleep and for kids going to school and homework and sports and whatever. And the kid looks at it and sees he's working 34 hours a day, but there's only 24 hours in the day. And I think that's good exercise for moms is where do you find, and I'm realistic, you know, it's not like you're going to have hundreds of things, but I work part-time when my kids were growing up. And 
I think that was an enormous help for them. And I think you find something that interests you. I just gave a talk and a woman came over to me and said, I just want you to know you changed my life with that stuff about moms because I heard you 12 years ago. And 12 of us, no, 10 of us went out and formed a tennis team and we still play. So it's years later. Understanding that carving out time for yourself is critical for you, but it's also critical monitoring for your child that there are other things in the world besides just their, just them. And I, I think the world's so broken right now that it's really important for kids to see that there's some responsibility to something other than accomplishment and performance and their GPA. Totally agree. <laughs> when you're writing, where and when, how do you write these books? Do you do all the research and then you sit down and carve out time? Like, what was your process like writing this book, for instance? So 80% of the book is laying in bed thinking. So, like, my husband will get up for work in the morning and he'll say, I have to go to work. What are you doing? And I'm like, I'm working. You know, I'm not sure he ever totally bought that, but that's true. <laughs> but it's absolutely true. So... The vast majority of writing a book for me, because I like writing, the vast majority of it is, what do I have to say? What's missing? How do these things fit together? I think what I'm good at is, you know, sort of a natural tone, but also weaving things together. I don't think I'm the most creative person by a long shot, or the smartest, or the best, none of that. I think my real interest is, how do these pieces fit together? This wasn't working why not? And it's good, goes right back to your point. It wasn't like this isn't working. Oh, shoot, I've wasted 12 years. I mean, I think curios- maintaining your curiosity in the world is incredibly important. So I'd say 80% of writing a book for me is figuring out what I want to say, how things fit together. Frankly, part of it is finding something I don't know anything about. And when I hand it in the chapter on the brain, Gail, my editor, said to me, I'm really glad you took neuropsychology, but your audience didn't. <laughs> and so that had to be trimmed back. Mm-hmm. But after writing about kids so long, it was like, what, what am I missing? What's interesting that I can learn? And then I have a little office on a garden, and I never go into the garden, but I can see it. <laughs> And I'm not a disciplined, my son writes also, my middle son, and he's like up every morning and he's at the, nah. I learned having all those kids, all my writing took place between 10 and 1. I wrote Price of Privilege and Teacher Children Well and two books before that between 10 and 1 in the morning because it was quiet. <laughs> quiet is nice. <laughs> Do you know what your next big idea is yet for the next book? Or are you still considering I'm not sure okay. but but if I do if I do write again I will write about this stage of life I really feel like I've said a lot of what I have to say about kids unless things change radically but it strikes me that me and many other people have written about child development there's dozens of us mm-hmm. who are interested in child development and there's a whole literature on child development but there's not on parent development. There are no books that are, this is the trajectory of parent development. And we change over the period of time that we raise our children. We change radically. And to think that the person you are now is going to be the person you're going to be in 20 years is foolish. You won't be. 
but nobody's looked at that. Mm-hmm. So again, it's the same kind of if I got inter- if I get interested, which I obviously am because I'm talking about it. It would be about the lack of information about what you're what you're going to face mm-hmm. and what kinds of resources you're going to need. And yeah, that's probably what I do. You should structure it around the scene in this book with your son when you were so sad and you said to him, yeah. that, I don't have kids anymore. And he said, no, I don't have children. I don't have children anymore. And he said, you always have kids. Wait, right. Let me just find this quote before I mess it up. Wait, where was it? Um, well, it was something like that. Where yeah, it's you don't have, I said my my children are grown. To find it. You said you don't have, he told you, you don't have children anymore, mom. You'll always, always have, have kids. kids. Right. Which is so sweet. Right. It's my favorite. That's my favorite line in the book. Me too. That was yeah. amazing. That or go play, you know, when he's telling me instead of sitting in the stands and being bored watching my 800th soccer game, he says, why don't you guys go play? Which is why I say it's a burden for the kid to see you week after mm-hmm. week sitting up there. You know, you work like a dog all week long and then you watch children kick a ball. And so, yeah, those are my two favorite lines. And it yeah, it is about that. It is about that change in your relationship with your kids. I have two daughter-in-laws all of a sudden. Well, that's a whole new thing. I have a granddaughter. That's a whole new thing. And right now I'm sort of realizing that they are, as much as I love them, they're not my children. My children know me. They know how I talk about things. I know them. So now I have to adapt to new people, new configurations, just my husband and myself in the house. You know, what's that going to be like? And yeah, they're always your kids, but your relationship changes and you want it to change. But it's a mixed, it's mixed bag, Libby. I had an interesting experience. I had written a piece called Losing Lauren when my oldest son went away to college. And I never showed it to anybody. It was highly personal and it was a difficult time for me, for my kid to go away and going away to college was when I lost my dad. Anyway, it was, it was a psychologically demanding time. So I wrote this piece about how it's hard to let your kid go away. And unfortunately, the magazine that printed it used the title Heartbroken. And somebody wrote to me, basically, what's the matter with you? You should be delighted. And it's like, it's not that simple. It's never that simple. We have incredibly complex feelings towards our children. And I would like more acknowledgement of that fact. I had wanted to write a book somewhere along the line here about mom's ambivalence. And like, Nobody wanted to hear about that (laughs) because moms are supposed to only be thrilled and love their kids 24-7. I mean, I've seen moms for 35 years. That's just not the way it is. Anyway. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Yes, I do, actually. And that is to get an agent, (laughs) to write. Don't try and impress anybody. You know, when you write, My experience, I can only go back to my experience of writing a book, is it's a conversation with myself. And I have trouble reading books where people are trying to show me how smart they are. You know, it's kind of the way I'll occasionally feel reading The New Yorker, where there are words I don't know. And I have to go to the dictionary, and it's like, I get it, you're smarter than I am. But I don't think that's the way to write 
a book. And I think it's whenever people find out I write, they say, oh, I have a book I want to write. And it's like, beware of what you wish for. And that took four years of my time, in addition to having a practice, in addition to having two jobs, in addition to having a family. So you have to really, I think you have to really like to write. And you'd be fine if it was for yourself and you'd be fine if it was a big seller. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for coming on Mom's Jump Time to read books and for all your amazing advice. Thank you. uh, All your stories. Thanks. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks again to Good Pods for sponsoring this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 